Specifically, I want to talk about passion for the Word of God. Anybody here love the Word of God? We should be, and we should be people who not only love it, but are falling, falling in love with it more and more. Um, personally, as I look at the church in our nation, I, I believe we desperately need a revival, an awakening, a renewal of our, of our true passion and seeking after the wisdom and the truth and the guidance of the word of God. That has the power to change our hearts, has the power to guide our steps. His word is, is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our pathways. And sometimes when we find ourselves feeling lost, one of the first things we need to check is, are we turning to the light? Are we relying on the light to lead and guide us? Um, in the text, we're going to look at Israel. You know, if you go to the Old Testament, you're probably going to be talking about Israel at some point in some way. Um, it's an interesting moment in their history. They're on the brink of walking into, of possessing the promised land. This is a word God gave them hundreds of years before to Father Abraham. I'm, I have a land for you that I'm going to bring your people into. And now we're hundreds and hundreds of years later, and, and this, this people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes that have developed and grown, and have been through so much. Their history has been so um, layered and complex, um, not the least of which was over 400 years of slavery that they've just come out of, and now they're on the brink of this promise. Isn't it interesting that the word of God can last? It endured Hundreds of years are given to a man, and now there's millions of people, and that promise is alive in them. It's as alive in them as it was when God gave it to Abraham. You know, there's something about this nation of Israel that's very unique in the scheme of human civilization. And on a side note, I trust you pray for Jerusalem and the peace of Jerusalem continuously. And on the side note, I trust you pray for our nation that we never turn against Israel, that we never turn our back or, or they cease to become a friend and an ally. Um, this is this nation that is about to possess the promise of God. They're about to possess the word of God and to experience and, and live within it. Um, for that to happen... For them to be at that point, how many of you understand it wasn't the power of the people? It was the power of God's word. It was the power of the, the Bible you hold in your hand has power in it. Power to shape life. Power to drive out darkness. Power to lead men and convict men and women of, of sin and lead them into righteousness. It has power. You know, we live in a day, everyone's looking for a reliable voice. Everyone's looking for a word that they can really trust, that they can really believe in, something they can put their full confidence in and still be able to sleep at night and, and no rest because they have confidence in the word that they're being told. Everyone's looking for a word where, where we're not being tossed to and fro because this person said that and that person said that and the rules keep changing. The Bible talks about its own stability it says that the prophet Isaiah writes that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. The psalmist says that forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And then this word of God becomes flesh. 
The author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ, he's the same yesterday, today, come on, and forever. His word is reliable, dependable. It doesn't change. The word becomes flesh, and now Jesus, as a man, says heaven and earth will pass away. But my word, but my words, they'll never pass away. We can rely on his word. No wonder Peter's response to Jesus' question, are you going to hang around a little longer? He said, where else am I going to go? You only have the word of eternal life, the word of God. So today I want to talk about a man that's really only mentioned in this scenario in, in, in scripture. Um, his name's Caleb. And you'll recognize the story if, if you've looked. It, it's, a, it's a well-known story. But Caleb was a man who had a passion for the word of God. He had a passion to possess the promise of God, the word of God, and to incorporate into his life and his life incorporate into it this, this word of God. So we're, we're going to do a message that I've entitled A Pivot Toward Passion. I'm trying to stay true to the series title, and sometimes I have to stretch to do it, but... Um, of pivot towards passion. Let's read the text, then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the message for today. Um, starting in verse 30, Numbers 13, verse 30, just um, the first four verses there. It says, but Caleb quieted the people. All right, so this is after the spies have returned. He quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up once and occupy, for we're well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him, the other 10 Spies said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Father, bless your word today. Lord, would you speak to us through your word? Would you, would you take your word and make them flesh in us? Make them meat in us. Make them nourishment to us. God, that we're, we're people of your word. So now with your word, transform and speak in our hearts. In the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Has everyone, anyone noticed, um, if you sort of watch or pay attention to the church and Christianity um, and its development, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but it seems to me that our Bibles are getting thinner. And let me explain what I mean by that. I, I believe that we are, have created and continue to create, and we've all been guilty of it one way or another, or at least thought it, maybe just never consciously. But we've all been guilty of, of uh, to create a, a, a cut-and-paste kind of Christianity. You know, in our history, there, there's a story about, well, it's not a story, it's true, um, about Thomas Jefferson. If you go to the Smithsonian, there's a, a thing on display called the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson wasn't a Christian. He was a deist, believed in God, but that's about it. And he had trouble with the Bible. And he literally, now he, when we say cut and paste, we think in computer terms, you highlight, you cut and paste, such a simple, wonderful thing. He didn't have a computer. Thomas Jefferson went through the word of God and he cut out, literally cut out everything 
that had to do with the miraculous, supernatural, because he didn't believe in that stuff. The things that had to do with living properly, moral standards and principles, he maintained. And, and we have a Jefferson's Bible now that has been cut and paste. And I'm not sure that we haven't done that and don't do that in our own lives, and I'm not sure we haven't done it as a culture. That the state of the church, at least in our nation, and at least from my appraisal, we have, we've sort of cut and paste the word of God. We've made our Bibles thinner. We've, we've taken out things that just are unpleasant to us. We, we're taking out things that, that we, we, we disagree with or we would rather prefer that they not be there. Salvation in itself, as the word presents it, it's, it's too narrow. What do you mean only one way to God? That, that, that doesn't play well. That, that makes us, you know, sound exclusive. So we got to broaden that. So we, let's, let's take that part. Let's, let's cut that part. Let, let's, you know, th- this thing about hell, come on, really? God is a loving God. And, and so we don't, this, this a literal, physical, burning place for eternity, let's, let's cut that out. That, we're not crazy about one man, one woman. Really? I mean, may, maybe back in the day, you know? Um, rules and laws about what's acceptable when it comes to human sexuality. You know, we have to allow for the fact that this was written so long ago by such different cultures and different mindsets that that certainly we can broaden that understanding now and it'd be all right. So let's just not put those restrictions in and, and maintain those anymore. And we're left till we're all done with our cutting and pasting. We're left with a Bible that has a form of godliness, but no power. But no power to change lives, no power to change our life. And we end up with a Bible that looks like us instead of a Bible that looks like him. Because we've fashioned it after ourselves. It points to us. doesn't point to Jesus. Caleb wasn't that kind of man. Caleb was not that kind of guy. He didn't let his passion shape the word of God. He let the word of God shape his passion. He wanted to desperately move into Canaan and didn't even see the possible obstacles because the word of God promised it to him. And his thing was, if God said it, let's get it. If that's God's word for us, then then we're going to stand and operate our lives based on his word. Now, when we talk about passion, I'm not talking about an emotion. All right, I'm not talking about just being excited about something because that comes and goes. That, that, that it, you know, fades and, and ebbs and flows. It, we're not talking about emotion. We're talking about a willful determination. We're talking about a, a volitional lifestyle. We're talking about people like Job. The, bad theology, but, but a, good, a good determination. Though you slay me, I'm going to trust you. We're talking about Queen Esther. If I perish, I perish. It's not, it's not about me. We're talking about the three Hebrew boys that we believe our God can save us from the furnace, but even if he chooses not to, we're not going to bow down to another God. We're talking about the apostle Paul who says to live is Christ, but to die is even better. It's, it's, it's gain. We're talking about a godly passion, a determination to possess all that God 
says, all that God has promised to possess his word, and even more so for his word to possess us. Everything I do, everything I say, everything my life is about is filtered through what he has said. You know, there's an old chorus that we used to sing, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. It's that kind of determination that the word of God is, is the light of my life and, and, and my life is going to be consumed with it and by it and, and in it. Listen, the world needs that kind of people with that kind of passion. The church needs that kind of people with that kind of passion. And I'll tell you something else. God is looking for that kind of person with that kind of passion. You know the background of the story. All right, we're, we're sort of cutting in. Our text sort of came into the middle of it. God instructed Moses, send 12 spies, one from each um, tribe. Let them each select someone, send them out. They went out. 40 days later, they come back. Um, and here's the report. You know, Caleb and Joshua, the only two who, who give a, a, a glowing report. Milk and honey, let's go do this thing. God has said it. We're, we're good to go. Um, we're we're going to get the land that he promised our father Abraham. But 10 of the spies said, not so much. It's, it, it's not going to happen. And they discouraged the people. And the people chose to follow the naysayers. The people chose to listen and give more credibility to the 10 instead of the two. And so now we find it's not two against 10. Now it's two against a nation. And the people refused to enter. They refused to move. And, and God said then, okay, if, if that's your choice, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what you've asked for. Because if you read the, the, the narration and the account, you'll find that when they, when they heard the report and all that, part of their thinking was, It'd be better if we would just die in the wilderness than to go in that, that, that land that is just, we can't take. And God said, okay, you, you get what you asked for. And then he pronounced judgment on that, that entire generation that every person from above 20 years old would not enter the promised land. They would never possess what God had promised to them. They would walk in that wilderness for, and for the next 40 years. And, and none of them would, except for Joshua and Caleb, none of them would enter. None of them would possess that which God had promised. None, none of them would know and touch and taste and feel and live in the place that God's word had guaranteed them. Now listen, God exempted that. He, he didn't leave them. He didn't abandon them. He didn't destroy them. He didn't reject them as his people. They were still going to live out their lives, and he was going to still be among them. They still had the tabernacle that they were instructed to build. They still had the Ark of the Covenant there with them. It's just that they were never going to taste and see the richness and fullness and satisfaction of what could have been had they stayed true to the word of God, had they maintained the word of God. They're never going to possess the abundance of his promise in their lives. You know, what a shame it is to be the people of God, but not walk in the abundance of God. What a great loss that is to know the great provider, but never partake of his provision. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life 
and that life, what? More abundantly. He's come that you might have an abundant life. Now listen, I'm not talking about the, the American Christianized version of abundance. I'm not talking about biggest house on the block, newest cars, more money than you know what to do with. We're not talking about that kind of abundance. We're not talking about some kind of a, a, a life where, where we just walk around singing Akuta Matata all day. Not about a life of nowhere. Oh, just come to Jesus and you'll know, never have a problem again. How's that working for you? I'm talking about an abundance of, of peace, an abundance of joy, an abundance of satisfaction, an abundance of contentment. You know, they moved into the promise, and when they finally did, the promised land wasn't this, this utopia. The promised land had, had enemies that had to be driven out. The promised land, when they moved in, they had to clear land and they had to toil to get the, their, their fruits and vegetables from the land. It wasn't this, this utopia, abundant kind of living. They had to work. They had to, they had to drive out enemies. That was part of it. That, but the abundance came in here. That in doing all that, they would be under the covering and the truth of the word of God and the promises of God. So it wasn't that they weren't going to have to fight. It was that they weren't going to have to lose. Did he say, I'll drive out all your enemies before you? So they, they may have had to fight, but they weren't going to lose. The, the, the fix was in. He said, I'll, because I'm going to be with you, because I'm going to be right there. Their abundance was in, in, in his presence. Their abundance was in, in the peace, the protection, the satisfaction that came along with his presence. Their, their abundance was in the rest and security they found in his word. Because God is always true to his word and a whole generation missed the fullness of God's promise because they wouldn't trust his word. Except Caleb and, and Joshua. Why? If you went ahead of chapter, chapter 14... Verse 24, and God is making this pronouncement now. He has told what's going to happen to the people. And he says, but my servant Caleb, everyone would want to hear God say this with their name. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I'll bring into the land in which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Boy, I, I want God to say that of me. I really do. I want God to say that of me. But why, why Caleb? What, what made, why didn't he, he, listen, he went and with the other spies, he saw the same things, he experienced the same things, he, you know, he, he came, but he came back with such a different report. Why? God answers the question for us. He says, because he has a different spirit. He has a different spirit, and that different spirit was identified and caused him to fully follow God's word. And by fully following God's word, it produced in him a different spirit. There was something unique and different about this man, Caleb. Now, we live much of our life trying not to be different. We live much of our life trying to blend in, to fit in, to be a part of. 
We, we often think being different is being weird, is being the outsider, is being the, the one everyone jokes about or pokes fun at, the, the, the one who you know, gets picked last on the teams. We don't understand different as God speaks of it and God sees it. And culture doesn't seek different. Listen, culture will always seek sameness. Culture will always seek. Now, they'll promise you in their advertising, in their trying to entice you, they'll treat you as though you are absolutely unique. And while they're telling you how unique and individualistic you are, they're just putting you on the conveyor belt that moves you along to be like everything else. While we think you look in the mirror and say, man, I'm so cool, I'm so unique. I'm t-. Yeah, get 10 of your peers and line them up and you all look the same. That's not an indictment. It's not right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a, it's a reality because the world goes after sameness because they don't under, really understand wholeness or unity. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, brings true wholeness, not through subjection to the same thing, but by surrender to the same king. That makes a difference. We can be totally different. But if we surrender to the same king, we're whole. We're one. We're united. Sameness will never happen. I don't, who wants it to? Who really would want? What a boring world. It's not about sameness. Christians with a different spirit has a, have a passion for God's word because it's the word of our king. We trust it because it's the word of our king. We believe in it because it's the word of our king. We put it in place in our lives and priority in our lives because it's the word of our king. Your Bible is not just another book on your shelf. And I can't take time to go down that tributary of how unique and wonderful the the word of God is, that it's a living, eternal thing. So you're just going to have to trust me on that. And I hope you already know it. I want to keep our conversation, though, today within the confines of the text. And within the text, notice, the world isn't a part of this. Only to the extent that they have observed what has happened, what, what the land in Canaan is, is like, they've, they've observed that. But, but this whole conversation that's taking place is within the people of God. So we're talking today about Christians. We're talking about us. We're talking about the church. They had a world to conquer, but they never did as a generation because they couldn't settle the internal strife. So they missed out on the mission that they were supposed to accomplish because they couldn't agree and rally around and stand upon the word of God together. See, everything that happened, the spies, the reports, the disagreement, the murmuring, the rebellion, all those different things, it was all among the people of God. We can't blame the world for this. We can't blame other people for, and other things for this. It, it is all within the people of God. So the question I want us to focus on today, as we hear this and, and, and think about it, just as, ask yourself, it's not, am I a child of God? That, that's settled. That, that's settled. Now, if it's not, if there's anyone here or listening that that's not settled, then, then please get in touch with us in some way. Or you can settle it right now by putting your faith in Christ. 
in believing who he is and who the word of God says he is. The question though I want you to think on, not is am I a child of God, I want you to ask yourself, do I possess a different spirit? Do I have a different spirit? See, Caleb was among the people of God, but he had had a different spirit than the people of God, than the majority of the people of God. All of them were Israel. All of them were God's chosen, but not all had a different spirit. All of them were God's chosen, but not all of them were fully following the Lord. Not all of them had, had a passion to possess what God has said. So the question is, why didn't they? That, that's where I want to try and help us today and give you something to go home and think about today. What, what quenched their passion? What drowned out their passion? What, what overtook their passion for the promise and the word of God? The text is telling us something that I wish wasn't true. That it's possible that we could believe in God but not believe on him. Do you know what I mean by that? That we could believe in him, that we could honor him as God, but at the same time lean on our own understanding and not on his word. So I want to use the time that I have left to to just talk about three things that that I pulled out of this text that that I hope can help us. Um, Three enemies of, of the passion for God's word that can, can root in us if we're not on guard, if we're not getting. And, and also the opposite of these then would be also be a definition of what a, a different spirit looks like. Okay? So let's just go through these three things. We'll, we'll pull them out of the text and, and I trust they'll be a help to, to all of us. Number one, what, what, can, what can kill the passion, our passion for the word of God in our lives? Number one, disbelief. Disbelief. Every argument they made in rebuttal to, to Joshua and Caleb's report was based on disbelief. Now notice, not unbelief, but disbelief. And they gave their reasons. The people are too strong. The cities, the walls are too high. We're too small. All these different things. But, but really, what it all fed into this, this one thing of a disbelief. See, disbelief isn't the lack of belief. Disbelief is refusing to believe. See? Unbelief means you have none. There's nothing there. We talk about wanting to win and, and bring the gospel to the unbeliever. But that's what we're talking about. These are the people of God. It's not that they, they were unbelievers. They were disbelievers. They chose not to. They knew the word of God that was spoken to them. They chose to not believe it. For all these other reasons, for all these rationalizations, for all this list of... But, but, but they chose not to believe it, which is astounding that they could come to this moment and choose not to believe the word of God. Listen, there are 40 days, only 40 days from walking free out of Egypt after hundreds of years. They saw the miracles of the plagues. They, they walked out of Egypt with the wealth of Egypt on their backs. They, they, they walked through a divided Red Sea. They walked through a sea and saw walls of water on both sides that God was holding back and the land under their feet was dry. They saw Pharaoh's army that was coming to re, re-enslave them. They saw that army destroyed before their very eyes. They didn't have to lift a sword. 
They were literally living in the middle of, of, of miraculous things. They were eating manna every day. Quail were coming to them. They, they were drinking water out of a rock. And they come to this moment, you'd think they'd be saying, the promised land, yes, finally. They wouldn't believe. They chose to not believe. It's like all those things that God did didn't count. They, or they just forgot about them, or they wouldn't bring them up and, and, and into their present moment. And disbelief got a hold of their heart. Disbelief kills passion because it disregards the character of God's word. Disbelief chooses not to believe in the character of God. You know, I would have, it would have been easier for me to read this passage and understand simple cowardice. We're afraid to go in. But disbelief says, I, I simply choose to not believe the God who has preserved them and kept them and promised them and given them. It, it wasn't enough. Their disbelief says, I, I know your word, but it's not enough I can trust. I just can't give myself to trust it. That's disbelief. When, when Thomas said, questioned the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus finally confronted him, the resurrected Christ now stands in front of Thomas, his disciple. What does he say, Thomas? Don't disbelieve. Only believe. Don't disbelieve. Not that Thomas didn't believe in Jesus, but he disbelieved that he was alive until he saw him. And then Jesus goes on and makes an interesting point. He says, you know what? It, it really, it's really doesn't take a whole lot of faith to believe something after it happens. But blessed are those who uh, don't see and yet believe and still believe. The people couldn't find that kind of faith. Because of disbelief. The second thing is exaggeration and, dece and deception. Exaggeration and deception. Look at the natural progression here. Disbelief always reduces the size of God and enlarges the size of the enemy. Exaggeration. Once disbelief gets in our heart, then we start exaggerating the other pieces and parts of our life. Everything that they reported was an exaggeration. Everything that they gave back as reasons why we can't go in and take this land was an exaggeration. The land devours its inhabitants. It's it's, this land is unconquerable. It's just the, the land itself just consumes the people who are in it. The cities are, are impenetrable. That No one could ever be able to overcome their cities. The, the walls reach up to the heavens and, the, the, and they're massive cities. And, and I love this one. All the people are giants. All the people are there that we saw are giants. You've got to be kidding me. They're in there for 40 days. They saw how many different cities, how many different people. There wasn't one short guy there. Come on. All the, but see, that's what, that's what happens. When, we, when we're not willing to follow the word of God, to choose to believe the word of God, even if it's, it's beyond our human understanding in the moment, to trust the word of God, then what happens? We start exaggerating the other sides of things and the parts and the components of, of life because we have to validate why we're choosing not to believe. And we, we do that, and exaggeration will always weaken our passion for the things of God. Oh, the Bible, it's, it's just, I read it, but it's just too hard. For, I'll never understand it. 
I, I just, I want to, but I, I just, I just don't have a mind for that kind of a thing. Huh? And I know other people talk about hearing God speak to them, and I, I, I'll never, that had, I can't hear. I, I, I'll never hear the, the word of God, or the, the God speak to me in any way. I've never, I don't think I've ever heard it in the past, and I don't think I'll, I get it moving forward. I just don't, I just don't get that. And, and I, you know, I pray sometimes, and I try to do, do my best, but I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. Other people talk about, you know, getting prayers answered, and I just, I don't think that's, that's for me. I'm not, you know, and share my faith. I'm not qualified. I, I never went to Bible school. I don't know. I'm not qualified to share my faith. I just go to church, and I love Jesus, and and, you know, everything's cool. And we discourage ourselves because exaggeration, you know, just kills passion. And we use these words, I'll never, I'll always, and, and, and just trying to dismiss us because disbelief opened the door. And exaggeration opens the door for deception. And that's where it gets serious. Once we start exaggerating, Exaggeration, our exaggeration in the hand of the devil is called deception. He will take our exaggeration and he'll confirm it back to us in a way that to us sounds true. And we come under a blanket of deception. Deception made Israel believe something. It made them believe that their past bondage was the answer to their present situation. Because they exaggerated, they're now home for deception. And their answer was, they, and, and this wasn't new. Their, this was their pattern. Every time Israel had a problem, what came out of their mouths? Oh, Egypt. Oh, Egypt. If only we could go back to Egypt. And suddenly that which enslaved, that which they hated, suddenly became like this wonderful utopia that we wanted to go. Oh, remember the leeks. Remember the fruits and vegetables. Remember the, remember the campfires at night where we just sang our songs. Oh, Egypt, oh, Egypt. Yeah, remember the slavery. Remember the whips? Remember the executions? Remember the chains? Listen, if the suffering of your past starts looking like a solution for your future, you're under deception. You're being deceived. The enemy has got a foothold in your thinking, and you're not thinking clearly. You're certainly not thinking based on the word of God and trust and reliance in the word of God. Increased passion to possess the promise of God is always up ahead of us. It's always ahead of us. It's always moving us forward to someplace better, someplace new, someplace of expansion, someplace of transformation. And there's something about us that when we're in trouble, especially if disbelief gets in and then we start blowing it up, suddenly we start thinking things that aren't even logical. Listen, it won't even take an astute Christian counselor to come to you and tell you that doesn't make sense. You can go ask your neighbor and lay it out. And he'll say, what are you, crazy? But that's what happens. And then the third one, idolatry. Which, as we even hear the word, we we recoil from it. But idolatry. Can Christians really be guilty of idolatry? We're Christians. We're saved. We, we know Jesus. Okay. Here's what Paul wrote, and he's writing to Christians. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. 
That's called idolatry. Anytime that we trust in something other than the word of God, it's called idolatry. Says, they said, oh, there were, there were Nephilim in the land. Now, I can't go down that road. There's, Bible scholars talk about this group of, of people, this, this unique thing called Nephilim, and, and there's all kinds of conjectures and different camps that interpret it different ways, and you can go study it on your own. But the, the three primary um, camps would be that the, these, this was a, a people of, of, like, they were renowned warriors. They were, they were military heroes that did unbelievable exploits. Or they, or they were, there was a giant race of people. It was, it was just a race of people that were just extremely big and tall. Um, there's a, the other theory out of Genesis 6 is that they were the offspring of, of fallen angels who um, slept with human women and produced children who, who were like, superhuman beings and, and, and large in stature and in might and power. And to these ancient Jews, when they heard the term, when they heard Nephilim, there was some mysterious, almost mystical thing that, that encompassed that word. Their reaction would have been wonder and awe and a little bit of fear and a little bit of curiosity and, and because, oh, the Nephilim. And, and remember now, these are people who are already fallen prey to disbelief and deception. Okay? And now, and now here comes this, this, this clincher that, oh, and we saw Nephilim in the land. And they're, they're thinking, oh, and what happens inside of them is the power of the word of God now gets eclipsed by their image and understanding or preconception or whatever it is, imagination of the Nephilim. And Nephilim became reverenced by them more than God. That's called idolatry. Anything that rises above the standard of who God is in our lives. Here's a statement that that may shock you initially, but, but I hope you'll let it settle and, under, and understand it. When we talk about idolatry, I'm, I'm not talking about you have carved images up on your mantle and you're bowing before it every day. I'm not talking about, I wish that's all it was. But at the end of the day, all sin is idolatry. You need to hear that. All sin. Because all sin is trusting in something or someone other than God. That's why we sin. Because we think that thing is going to bring us something, do something for us. And we, it's ele- it now has, we have just elevated whatever that is above who God is. See, sin looks, when, when we sin, it's because we're looking for some kind of satisfaction, some kind of fulfillment, some kind of gratification, some kind of blessing, if you would, from someone or something. And if it's anything other than God, if it's... It, it, if it's sinful, it's idolatry. It's idolatry, which means anything can be idolatry in our hearts. Anything can be. Even the things of God. Do you know you can worship worship? And God have nothing to do with it? Do you know you can worship Bible knowledge? And God have nothing to do with it? Think about the Pharisees. The word made flesh, standing in front of them, talking to them. Missed it. But they knew the Bible. 
The, the list goes on and on. Our tradition, our icons, our liturgy, our formats, everything goes on and on. It's like the, the, these, these people earlier who, who created the, and formed the first sacred cow. It wasn't the last one. People of God have been really good at fashioning sacred cows ever since. All right, I'm sorry. You know, we hear about worship wars. I'll tell you the true and real worship war. It's not about music or styles or contemporary, traditional. That's not worship wars. The real worship war, nowhere takes place, not in the church. It doesn't take place in the sanctuary. It takes place in the sanctuary of your heart. That's where the true worship war takes place. Because that's where the enemy tries to get inroads. And that's where he tries to bring in all kinds of things that will take the place of God in your life. I need the worship team to come, if they would, as we've got to end this. The people of God, they're on a journey. They're on a journey to possess the word of God, the promise of God. Their passion for the word of God, for all that God had told them and laid out before them, their passion was, was overwhelmed, was swallowed up by disbelief, by exaggeration and deception. By idolatry. But Caleb had a different spirit. Caleb fully followed God. He wasn't perfect. He, my guess is, because he was just a guy, some of the things that the other spies said, he thought them. There were some things that he looked at and said, whoa, that's a big one. But where his heart settled, was God, you said it. I, I, don't, I don't know how we're going to go in there and take this land. I did see some pretty big folk in there. I did see some pretty strong cities in there. I don't know how we're going to take this land, but you said. And that's where his heart settled. That's where all of his decisions settled. That's where everything he filtered his life through settled. That's a different spirit. That's fully following the Lord. If you look at just that scenario, you know, they take a vote. He's outvoted. It looks like he lost. But it's not the last time we'll see Caleb in Scripture. If you give it a little bit of time, Caleb shows up again. Only he shows up in the promised land. See, if, if you'll stay true to the word of God, if you'll stay firmly fixed, if you'll make your stand in faith, the, the word of God will work. The word of God will do everything it says it does and can do and will do if you stay the course. 40 years have gone by. Caleb's buried a lot of friends. He now lives in a nation where there's only one other peer. It's, it's him and Joseph, or Joshua. It's him and Joshua. Everyone else is the next generation. But Caleb, different spirit, didn't change. Same Caleb, different setting, comes to Joshua, who's the leader now, and says, 
you, you see that mountain over there, Hebron? I know I'm 85. I got a bunch of young guys around me. They can help. I want that mountain. I want that mountain. There's something about a different spirit that's indomitable. It's just, it's just always reaching, always thriving, always growing, always believing. Whatever obstacles you may be facing in your life, whatever realities have, have confronted you, and you've made your list of, of why maybe you, you need to go back to something. Uh, take, take courage and take a lesson from, from Caleb this morning. Dare to have a different spirit. Dare to delve into the word of God. Dare to give yourself time and energy. Listen, wanting and, and saying I love the word of God isn't enough. That's like telling your husband or your wife, I love you. But then never talking to them, never being home, never spending any time with them. Get into the word of God even more. Let the word of God get in you. And don't, don't enter the word of God with your, with your cut and paste mentality. Let the word of God shape you. Let the word of God enlarge you instead of you shrink the word of God. And you'll find that God is true to his word. He is always true to his word. And ultimately, the promise, the word of God that we want to reach, that we want to possess, that we want to possess us. See, we have an advantage today that Caleb didn't. Caleb understood the promise, the word of God was all tied up and wrapped up in the promised land. But we understand because we're looking backwards and we have the new covenant and we have the apostle Paul, that great theologian who explained something to us, that back at the beginning when God gave the original promise to Abraham, he said, Abraham, and I, this, I'm giving you this promise to you and your seed, singular. So we have all the descendants, but the seed of the promise wasn't Isaac and Jacob and the tribes and prophets and priests and all that unfolded. They're covered by the covenant, but the promise was the seed that would one day be born of a virgin teenager. The promise of God is Christ. He's the personification of the very word of God. Your Bible is his story. So what do we want to possess in our lives to have that different spirit? We're going after Christ. We're going after Jesus. The word of God is all about Jesus. Whether you're in Genesis or Revelation and everything in between, if you look under all the corners and all the nooks and crannies and sometimes just right out in the open, it's about Jesus. So that's our pursuit. Our pursuit is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the promise, the word of God. And as we pursue him, we become more like him. 
and what he produces in us is a different spirit that will stand time and that will be effective in this world. We're going we're gonna to stand and worship um, as, we, as we close our time. Just, and while, while we do, just allow the Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. Is there any, especially in the area of, of the three things we mentioned, ask, ask the Lord, Lord, show me, is there any areas in my life of, of disbelief, any areas of, of exaggeration or even deception where I'm just thinking wrong and anything that I treat in life or I value in life or I esteem in life greater than you, Lord, show me my heart. And then respond. If the Holy Spirit reveals something to you, respond properly to it. We're going to worship the Lord and then we'll come back and pray together.